Well, we're going to be uh, continuing this morning our series working through the book of Philippians. Uh, the uh, title for the whole series is Finding Joy. We've been looking at how to find joy in, in a whole raft of different life situations. This week, looking at the whole subject of finding joy in temptation. And I want to start out with what's going to be one of my all-time favorite illustrations. Apologies to those who've been around for a while and may have heard it before. Uh, it's the story of a basset hound named Tattoo, as reported in a newspaper several years ago. I quote, Tattoo didn't intend to go for an evening run, but when his owner shut his leash in the car door and took off for a drive, Tattoo had no choice. A police officer named Kerry Filbert noticed a passing vehicle with something that appeared to be dragging behind it. As he passed the vehicle, he saw Tattoo. Officer Filbert chased the vehicle until it stopped. Here's the good news. Tattoo was rescued. The bad news. But not before reaching a speed... of 30 miles per hour and rolling over several times. Now, to fully appreciate this story, the picture helps to some degree. You can't see the legs, though. You have to remember that basset hounds come equipped with quarter-inch legs. If you think about it, this really is the most unfortunate dog to get caught by the leash in the door of a car traveling at speeds of up to 30 miles per hour. This dog was not built for such a trip. Nature didn't intend for basset hounds to ever run that fast. When God designed the basset hound, he didn't create it with the physique for 30 mile an hour sprints. The article concludes, Tattoo has not asked to go out for a walk for a long time. What Tattoo thought was going to be an enjoyable, leisurely stroll turned into an extremely uncomfortable journey. Now, over the years, I've met many Christians who I think bear a striking resemblance to Tattoo, the Basset Hound. Not, I hasten to add, in their appearance, but in their experience of the Christian life. It's like they've experienced the miracle of being born again, the wonder of conversion. Their sins have been forgiven. They've experienced the amazing grace of God in their life. They're declared righteous in the sight of God. They now know peace with God, and the peace of God richly lives in them. And they kind of assume that going on from there, the Christian life will be a leisurely stroll. They imagine that growth in godliness is just inevitable. They think that becoming more like Jesus will be effortless. And then, soon after their conversion, in effect, the leash of their life gets caught in the door of indwelling sin and trials and difficulty and temptation. And they bounce along for a period of time, not quite knowing what's going on or when it's going to end and whether or not actually they're going to survive the whole thing. And when it's finally over, they're left confused. They're bewildered. They're pretty disillusioned. And through the whole experience, growth in godliness suddenly seems very elusive, if not impossible. Now, after his traumatic journey, 
Tattoo was reluctant to take another walk. Maybe you find yourself in a similar condition this morning in relation to your walk with God. My guess is there's any number of people in this room today who are just worn out by their attempts to live a godly life. If truth be told, you'd prefer not to hear another message on growth in godliness. You're kind of sick and tired of listening to talks Sunday after Sunday that challenge you to live differently. Because when you're trying to change in a particular area, you invariably find that after a few months or so, you've simply just reverted back to how you were before. For all your effort, you're not a whole lot different. And so you've resigned yourself to staying the same. It's like your hope and your expectations have been worn right down. And you've lost the appetite, the drive, the motivation to keep on trying to apply God's word to your life. And then I guess, looking around, there are probably others here who are just ever so slightly confused as to how to go about growing in godliness. I mean, if you read it, the Bible appears to teach two completely different things. Is the Christian life about ease or effort? Is it about rest or work? Is it about trust or obedience? Is it about grace or works? What are we to think? What do we make of this? How do we even begin to go about resolving all of those apparent contradictions? Well, I've got some very good news for you this morning. Well, you may be confused, perhaps even more confused, by my introduction. The Apostle Paul certainly isn't confused. You need to know, Paul was a man who himself faced a whole lot of temptation in his life. As he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, he's in prison. The guy's pretty beaten up. He's hated, he's despised, he's opposed. He's had a really rough life. And I'm sure that somewhere along the way, he was at least slightly tempted to just give up, to give in, to throw in the towel, to kind of settle into apathy and lethargy just for the sake of an easy life. But despite the temptation to avoid trouble and just play it safe, Paul resolved to keep on serving faithfully right through to the very end. And now he's writing this letter to this church in Philippi. And this is a church that themselves have been tempted to lose sight of God, to lose sight of their mission. For them, it's a matter of grumbling and complaining and division among themselves. There, there are the beginnings of very real controversy in this church. And so part of what we're going to see today is that Scripture is timeless. Paul's words to the Philippians remain very relevant for us today. See, through the divinely inspired words of Paul here in Philippians 2, I believe God has provided clarity for us on this critically important issue of spiritual growth. If you want to grow in godliness, this passage tells us how to go about doing it. So before we go any further, I want to ask you, do you want to grow in godliness? Do you want to learn how to grow in godliness? Do you want to learn how to live a life that pleases God. Do you want that? Well, if you do, I've got two very simple points to try and help you today. Point number one, our part. Point number two, 
God's part. I told you it was simple. Now, as we study these verses, we're going to discover more about our part in this whole process. We're also going to unearth a little more about God's part in this whole transforming process. It's like Paul distinguishes between our responsibility and God's power. So we're going to learn today something about the nature and the extent of God's power. And we're also going to learn the importance and the necessity of our efforts. Let's begin with our part. Let's start reading in chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, okay, I just need to stop right there, because this word is very important. I want you to miss the uh, crucial nature of it. This word marks a significant turning point. If you like, it says, in the light of everything that you have just seen, this is now what you should do. So if we're going to benefit from Paul's very practical teaching in these next few verses, we at least need to have a basic grasp of the flow of his argument in the preceding verses. We we kind of need to look at what the therefore is there for. So, let me very quickly bring you up to speed with the context of this whole passage. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul brings this instruction. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He reiterates this in chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then in verses 6 to 11, the verses we looked at last time, Paul describes the breathtaking example that Jesus humbly set through his extraordinary descent, culminating in his death on the cross. Before, then scaling the peaks of the ascension and the exaltation of the risen and triumphant Jesus. Paul is saying, in light of the humility of Jesus to serve us, and in light of the greatness of Jesus who has now been exalted, surely we're going to aim to live our lives like Jesus with Jesus, for Jesus, and by the power that Jesus has given us. And so in verse 12, Paul starts to spell out what this looks like in practice. He wants what Jesus did on the cross in the past to have a lasting impact to our lives in the present. He's concerned that we apply this on a day-to-day basis. He wants it to result in transformation and growth in our personal lives. You see, the truth of what Jesus has done on the cross isn't simply for us to admire, or even merely for us to tell our friends about. No, we're to apply it to our lives. Paul's wanting us to see that in view of the gracious work of Christ on the cross, we have a very clear role and responsibility in the pursuit of godliness. So he says, therefore, as a result of all of that, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, won't you continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Now there's a whole lot of confusion and a whole lot of misunderstanding among Christians on this particular verse. So I want to just very quickly clear up what this text doesn't say. Paul does not say here, work for your salvation. Those addressed here are not being exhorted to in some way earn their salvation 
from God. Nor are they being told to pay him back for saving them. No, 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 no. The Philippians, like us today, have already received their salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. So fortunately, we don't have to earn our salvation. I mean, none of us could ever be good enough anyway. And we certainly don't have to worry about somehow paying Jesus back for what he's done for us. It's by grace that we've been saved. It's completely and utterly a free gift. It's totally unmerited, undeserved, and independent of our performance. You get the point. Paul definitely isn't exhorting us to work for our salvation. However, neither is he saying, just relax. Why don't you sit back? Be passive. Do nothing. No, he says, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. That's our part. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So our part involves a specific action, and it involves a certain attitude. We begin with action. Paul says we're to work out our salvation. In other words, growth in godliness doesn't take place apart from our active participation in this whole process. Notice in this text, we immediately encounter a command. Right at the very outset, we're informed of our responsibility. And we're told of the very real necessity of effort. So make no mistake about it. There is absolutely no excuse for passivity on our part. We are called to be active. And I guess that shouldn't really come as a great surprise to us, because it's the consistent teaching of the whole of the New Testament. So, for example, Hebrews 12, verse 14, urges us to make every effort to live in peace with all people and to be holy. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, Paul says, train yourselves to be godly. Similarly, 2 Peter 1, verse 5, tells us to make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. So it's pretty clear. The Christian life is supposed to be active and not passive. This whole, if you want the theological term, sanctification process, or in layman's terms, this whole pursuit of godliness, this becoming conformed into the likeness of Christ, it doesn't just happen automatically. It requires striving. It involves training. It's dependent on us making every effort. In the words of John Owen, one of the great Puritan preachers, God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. And commenting on this very passage in Philippians 2, C.H. Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, he said, the assistance of divine grace the help of God's grace isn't given to us to put aside our own efforts, but to excite them. God comes to us to work in us. To be indifferent? No! Just to wake you up. To work in us, to will with resolution and firmness. Does he work in us, having willed for us just to sit still? 
No! He works in us to do. The direct effect of the influence of grace upon the heart is to make a man active. And the more grace he has, the more energetic he becomes. The man will never overcome sin except by grace-inspired energy. Do you get the message? Our part, our role, our responsibility here, it involves action. It involves a whole lot of energy. It also involves a certain attitude. We're to work out our salvation, Paul says, with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is the attitude which is to motivate, inform, and characterize our active pursuit of godliness. Now again, I don't want you getting the wrong end of the stick here. This whole attitude of fear and trembling in no way contradicts the joy and peace which we're to know as believers. Both are an appropriate response to our knowledge of God. I mean, if we believe Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11, where Paul speaks of the magnificent exaltation of Jesus to the very highest place, if we believe that, then surely we won't work out our salvation casually or lightly. And if we believe that there's coming a time when the entire universe is going to bow the knee and confess the lordship of Jesus Christ, if we believe that, then those of us who already know him, surely we will obey him with a sense of wonder and awe. Christian writer Alec Mocha, I think he helpfully explains this. He says, this is not the fear of the lost sinner before the Holy One. No, this is the fear of a true child of God before the most loving of all fathers. Listen, when by the grace of God you have been born again, a big transition takes place. A big change occurs. God is no longer your judge. God is now your father. And so you're now freed from the fear and the dread of one day standing before him and being the object of his legitimate wrath against your sin. Your sins have been dealt with. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and through your trust, your faith, your confidence in his sacrifice, you have now been reconciled to the Father. And yes, there is an appropriate fear before God, but it's not the fear, it's not the dread of a lost sinner. It's the fear of a child of God before the most loving of all fathers. And as a loving father, he will discipline those he loves. The whole point of discipline is to teach us how to live best, It's to teach us how to live in the good of all God has for us, how to stay close to God, which really is the best place to be. So because he loves us, because he's a good father, he will discipline us, but he'll never punish those he loves because he has already punished his son on their behalf. Jesus, once and for all, bore the punishment that our sins deserve so that we ourselves don't need to bear that punishment ourselves. 
So if you're a Christian here today, and maybe you're going through a period of trial and difficulty and suffering, I'd suggest God isn't punishing you. Because the punishment that we deserve for our sins was placed in entirety on Jesus. Let me just very briefly address anyone here today who perhaps hasn't come to that point, who maybe hasn't come to that point of faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't turned from your sin, I'd be doing you a colossal disservice if I didn't at least tell you that you should greatly fear and dread God. Perhaps you're thinking, well, are you trying to scare me? Well, if truth be told, yes, I am. But I want you to consider for a moment the substance of this fear. And you'll see that ultimately it isn't me who's trying to scare you so much as God himself wanting to reveal himself to you. In his mercy, he wants to draw you to himself by showing you just how urgent your need really is. If you haven't turned from your sins, if you haven't placed your faith, your confidence in the work of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins... And I want to say to you, you must fear God. You must dread Him. I mean, think about it. If He was willing to see His own dearly beloved Son crucified to deal with the consequences of the sins of all those who would one day believe in Him, how do you think He's going to treat those who reject His offer of forgiveness? The truth is, You really needn't fear the wrath, the punishment, the judgment, the condemnation of God. As I've already alluded to, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the choice is simple. You can keep living with no reference to God. Live that way, you'll find yourself eternally separated from Him in what the Bible describes as hell. Or accept God's incredible act of kindness in sending his son to die in your place. And the Bible says, you will be saved. How could you resist this offer? Why would you resist this offer? Please, don't resist this offer. But if you do, you should leave here very fearful of God turn to Philippians 2 verse 12. As I've already said, actually the fear that Paul's describing here is not the fear of a lost sinner, but rather it's the fear of a dearly loved child of God. We don't want to grieve him. We don't want to grieve the one who has been so amazingly gracious to us. And we certainly don't want to offend the one before whom one day we will all have to give an account. You see, Although there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, nonetheless, we will still all have to appear before the judgment seat of God to give an account of our lives. I don't know about you, but I want to enter glory having brought a smile to the face of the God I love with all of my heart. It's not that my salvation is in any doubt. It's not that on that day, if I've already responded to Jesus, work on the cross for me. It's not that I'm going to be cast out and judged in hell for my sin. No, my salvation is secure. 
Yet there's a possibility that by pursuing sin, by living in compromise, by being half-hearted and passive and indifferent, but by giving my life to things of only transient worth, I may offend God. Just imagine looking God the Father in the eye on that final day, having to give an account for such a life, knowing all the time that in his grace, he'd given up his son to death on the cross for you. No wonder Paul urges us to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. That's what I suggest is in view here in this passage in Philippians 2 verse 12. Fear of grieving and offending a holy, gracious Father. To quote a guy called Sinclair Ferguson, it is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realise who God is and what he's done for us. Another Christian writer, Jerry Bridges, he writes, as we grow in our love for God and our understanding of his love for us and what he has done for us in Christ, we will more and more delight to fear him. I don't know about you, I've got to admit, personally, in my life, I don't think consistently I'm quite there yet. I want to have this fear and this reverence, this awe in my walk with God. I want to work out my salvation with fear and with trembling. But to speak of delighting to fear him, consistently I'm not always there. And maybe that's your experience as well. Maybe you you hear this and you'd rather have the the peace and the rest and the joy, but fear and trembling, that that sounds a bit too heavy. I want to pray before we go any further. And I want to invite God to come and show himself to us in all his fullness. As I keep on speaking, as we move on to the next part of this message, I want your minds to be filled with a greater understanding of who God is. I I want your hearts to be moved more and more with with an awareness and a passion for God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are our Father. Thank you that you are a phenomenally good Father. Thank you you love us. Thank you you're for us. Thank you you want the best for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your wonderful forgiveness. These are truths we bask in. These are truths we truly cherish and delight in. Yet, God, we don't want to be lopsided in our view of you. We want to see you as you really are, or at least as much as these frail physical bodies can cope with. So God, would you please send your spirit amongst us now. And in some way, would you open our eyes to the magnitude of the reality of who you really are. Your majesty, your holiness, your power. God, would you not merely fill our minds with intellectual knowledge, would you touch our hearts as well? From the softest heart to the stoniest heart, you work in our hearts 
you draw our hearts more towards you? Would you cause us to, to feel a, a right response towards you? Let, let fear and reverence and awe and trembling be right there with celebration and joy. God, we want to see you as you really are. Stay with us. Open our eyes to you. I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before we move on, let's just try and recap what we've seen. We've seen that our part in all of this, our part in training in godliness, it involves action. We're to work out our salvation. And it also involves a certain attitude. We're to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Now here's at least one way that I think this might apply to us. We are not to ask God to work in our place. We're not to ask God to work instead of us. We're not to passively wait for him to come and in some magical way change us. We aren't to think of our behavior as God's responsibility. Now, you might be listening to that thinking, well, that's a bit obvious, but I want you to at least think for a moment about how you pray. How often do you find yourself in your praying effectively postponing your obedience to God by kind of pleading with him to do for you what he has explicitly commanded you to do. How often do you do that? I don't know. Maybe you pray like this. God, stop me gossiping. God, make me holy. God, stop me lying. God, make me a better husband. Make me a better dad. God, make me obey my parents. Maybe you never pray that, but you could perhaps find yourself one day praying those kind of prayers. Look, you mustn't, you really mustn't hold God ultimately responsible for the lack of change in your life. Paul says you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's our part. Now let's just devote a few minutes to God's part. Prepare yourself to be encouraged. Please, prepare yourself to be encouraged. The first half of this talk might have been a little on the heavy side. The second half, altogether different. Because although the call to work out our salvation is a command from God, is not an appeal to self-sufficiency. Paul doesn't want us constantly laboring under the illusion that the power necessary for growth in godliness is somehow self-generated. Somehow it comes from us. Now this passage clarifies how we're to grow. It reminds us of our very real responsibility. It insists on our effort, but it also emphatically states that only God's power makes godly effort possible. Only God's power. Paul couldn't be clear on this. He says, it is God who works in you. What a comfort. What an encouragement. If you believe in Jesus, I can guarantee you today that God is at work in you. He lives in you. And he is actively at work. He is tirelessly working in your life, right now. You know why I find this so encouraging? 
because I am very aware that sin is at work in me. In fact, perhaps some of us here are far more aware of sin's work than God's work in our lives. I don't want you to hear me wrong. I don't want you to turn a blind eye to sin's work in your life. I don't want you to deny it and pretend it's not there. It's just I want you to be much more aware of God's work in your life. Because God is far more strong than any sin that could ever tempt you. He is substantially superior in power. After all, this is the exact same God who raised Jesus, his son, to life again, who exhorted him to the highest place, giving him the name that is above every name. That exact same God is powerfully at work in your life today. Believe it. Never forget it. Daily remember it. Regularly draw strength and encouragement from it. It is God who works in you. Now here's my concern. It's possible for God to be at work, but for us to fail to perceive how he's at work. And for us therefore to be unresponsive to his work. A guy called Henry Blackaby, he writes, one of the greatest tragedies among God's people is that while they have a deep longing to experience God, actually, they are experiencing him day after day, but just don't recognize it. So let me ask you, do you recognize the work of God in your life? As you look back over the last week, do you recognize how God has been working in your life? You see, if you're a genuine Christian here today, God is at work in you. It's indisputable. To disagree with this is to call God a liar. As you look back over the last week, God has been at work. But it's my guess that a lot of the time, many of us are blind to what God's doing. Because a lot of the time, God's work in us isn't immediately or apparently spectacular. Very often, it's not so obvious for us to see. I want to try and illustrate this, try and help you get what I mean. Often, at the end of a meeting like this one, someone or a group of people will show a whole lot of courage and humility in approaching me. And the courage and humility isn't in the actual approach of me. I'm not that intimidating, I hope. The courage and humility comes in what they ask. They say, Jonathan, would you please pray for me? And they're then going to describe perhaps an area of sin in their life, or maybe a way in which they want to grow to become more like God. Now, I appreciate their humility and their sincerity. You know, I believe God gives grace to the humble. I also believe in the power of prayer. I love praying for people. I'm not trying to put people off from doing that. I, mean, I love praying for people. But I also believe that growth in holiness and weakening the influence of sin, and cultivating godliness in a person's life isn't normally the fruit of a spectacular experience through a one-off prayer. I wish it was different. I wish that maybe you had a pattern of anger in your life. I wish you didn't have that, but if you did, I wish that if you had a pattern of anger in your life, I could ask you at the end of the meeting to come up to the front, stand in a line, and I could say to you, I'll pray for you, and it will dramatically 
and decisively end. You'll go home and your wife won't recognize you. Your kids won't recognize you. People just having casual conversations with you in the week will stop in mid-sentence and say, is this really you? I mean, what's happened? Instead of being angry, you are now patient the whole time. Instead of being angry, you are bursting with joy. Instead of being angry, you're constantly thankful, singing worship songs wherever you go. I wish it happened that way. I wish it did. I wish there was enough Holy Spirit power in me to lay hands on you and say, anger, die! Joy, explode! You know, it doesn't work that way. I wish it did. I wish it did. Here's what I can assure you of. God is at work. And the fact that you can't always see God's work doesn't mean that his power is any less at work in your life. It just means that you need to understand and perceive how he's at work. And you need to be aware of how he's at work so you can respond to his work. Now again, please don't hear me wrong. In my slight flippancy, I don't want you to miss the fact God can do spectacular stuff. He can encounter our lives and, and turn us around. I mean, read the example of Saul in the New Testament who became the Apostle Paul. I mean, pretty dramatic encounter with God. He can do spectacular stuff. But the entirety of my life isn't lived transitioning from one spectacular moment to another. Sorry if that disillusions you. Maybe you thought the leader of the church, they should live on that kind of altogether more holy uh, sphere. That, most of my life... It's just pretty mundane. I wonder if you can relate to that. Maybe you are kind of on a higher realm than me, I don't know. But most of my life, maybe most of your life, it's just pretty mundane. Let's be real. So much of what God does isn't immediately obvious. Change can be gradual. So much so that we can easily miss it in our own lives. We, we can be blind to what God's working in us at any given time. So here's an idea. Here's how perhaps we could help one another in all of this. When you see evidence of the work of God in another person's life, why don't you point it out to them? You know, I think we're far too quick to point out people's faults and criticize them for uh, lack of evidence of God's work in their lives. How about if we flip it over ever so slightly? And when you see evidence of the work of God in someone else's life, point it out to them. Let's be quick to encourage one another. Peace, in the middle of a difficult time. That's evidence that God really is at work in someone's life. Every act of kindness to others, every generous gesture, every thoughtful comment demonstrates God's activity in an individual's life. An ability to be patient when things don't at first work out as desired, a willingness to trust in God when circumstances are just plain perplexing, an unshakable faith in the face of dreadful calamity, all of those attitudes trumpet loud and clear that God has done something very profound in a person's life. Can I make an appeal? Let's encourage and appreciate and celebrate the work of God in one another's lives. But in all of this, I don't want to give you false hope. I don't want you leaving at the end of this meeting thinking, well, now I'm trusting that something very dramatic has happened, 
and sin has been addressed and it has been totally eradicated from my life. So from now on, it will never rear its head again. Never again will I be tempted in those ways. It's a thing of the past. It's not going to trouble me anymore. That's a wrong expectation. It'll only ever set you up for disappointment. Temptation will still be there. If you're expecting it to be gone, you will end up disillusioned. So what hope can we have? What hope is there when you're by yourself and you're tempted to view a site that you know is pornographic? Or you're tempted to not only correct your child, but completely lose it with them. Or you're tempted to pass on the latest gossip. What hope is there? Well, all those temptations aren't going to go away. What hope is there then that you can be genuinely different in that moment when you're faced with those exact same temptations? Here's the hope. Here's the only hope. Here's sufficient hope. God is at work in your life. Not spectacularly all the time, but he is still at work. In fact, my headings at the beginning could be slightly misleading. Our part, God's part, it could give the impression that we both have equal parts to play. That is not what I'm saying. That's not true. We categorically don't have equal parts to play. Our part is important. Our part is vital. We have very real responsibility. But our part is only possible because of God's part. And apart from God's work in us, we cannot play a part. Bit of a tongue twister. Managed to get it out. Really don't want you to miss this. God's part is so incredibly comprehensive. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Do you get the picture? It's amazing. When you become a Christian, it's like God places a whole new desire in us to willingly do his will. You'll have seen it. You'll have known it. You start asking questions like, well, I've been acting like this. I've been behaving in this way, but I'm beginning to wonder what God thinks about this. Have you got any advice for me? You've behaved in the past in a particular way, but you start thinking, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? And when you find out what God says, when you find out what the Bible says, there may still be a reaction in you. I'm not sure if I actually want to live that way. And it may take a while for your will to fully catch up with that, but it's like there's an inner desire to, to, to know what God wants and to live to please him. And you don't get it right all the time. And it can take a time to catch up with, uh, with, with what God says but that's the trajectory you start being on. God changes, starts working, starts molding your will, wanting you to become more like him. But not only that, he also provides us with the power by his Holy Spirit to act according to his good purpose. I chat with some people, they say, I really love to become a Christian, but I, I see what's asked of me and I could never do that. You never expected to do it in your own strength. Yes, you'd have put in work, but God promises to come to you by his Holy Spirit and empower you to live out the Christian life. You see, God doesn't merely work to strengthen us. God is physically working within us both to will, acting on our wills, and to act. He works at the level of our wills and the level of our doing. So I think 
rather than being a disincentive to press on. Paul's argument here is surely the ultimate incentive to press on. I mean, if we really believe this, won't we be all the more determined to will and to act in ways that please our wonderful Heavenly Father? Because we can have every confidence that He who began a good work in us, He will carry it on to completion. And I'll tell you why. Because it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on God's work in us. And He's constantly at work, empowering our will and empowering our actions. In the words of one Bible commentator, and in respects, this perfectly summarizes everything I've been trying to say. In fact, maybe I shouldn't have said any of that. I should have just given you this sentence and sent you on your way. This encapsulates it perfectly. God works and has worked. Therefore, we can and must work. For God works in us what is necessary for our human working. Let me say that one more time. God works and has worked. Therefore, we can and must work for God works in us exactly what is necessary for our human working. This is why you can work. This is why you must work. This is why you can grow in confidence that you will grow in godliness. This is why you can overcome that persistent sin that in all probability you've been thinking about even as I've been addressing you with this message. This is why you can go away and you can cultivate all the fruits of the Holy Spirit working in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. This is why you can be conformed into the image of the likeness of Jesus. You can work because of his work in you. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I believe God wants to speak directly into some of your personal situations. I believe God wants to meet you where you're at and encourage you and drive this message home. Because some of you, you'll be thinking, well, it sounds great in theory, but actually it's impossible. God would say to you, all things are possible. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that illustration of Tattoo the Basset Hound, it's mildly amusing, but yeah, I can relate to that. I feel like I can't go on. God would say to you, my grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you're thinking, well, I still can't figure this out. I mean, I still don't get it. God says, I will direct your steps. Maybe you think, I can't do it. I've tried so many times. I'm sick and tired of responding at the end of meetings and nothing changes. God would say to you, because he's at work in you, you can do all things. You say, but I'm not able. God says, I am able. You say, I can't manage. The pressure's too great. You don't understand my situation. God says, I will supply all your needs. You say, but I'm afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid of what might happen if I live this out. God says, I've not given you a spirit of timidity. You say, but I'm always so worried, so frustrated. That's like my, my, my knee-jerk reaction always, just stress. God says, cast all your cares 
on me. You say, but I'm not clever enough. I don't know all the verses. I don't remember them all. God says, I give you wisdom. You say, but I feel alone. It's great when I'm here with so many others to encourage me, but when I go home and I'm alone by myself, I, I struggle. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Listen, there really is no reason to give up because God is at work in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. So in conclusion, what are we to do? We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why are we to do this? Well, because of the example set for us by Jesus. Jesus, in his grace, humbled himself to death. But not only that, he's now exalted to the highest place. Therefore, in light of all of this, we must work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. How are we to do this? We're to adopt a specific action. We're to work. We are to put in effort. We're to strain. We're to train ourselves to become more like Jesus. But also to adopt a certain attitude. We're to do this with fear and with trembling. Because there's coming a day when everyone will see Jesus for who he really is. And at that point, they have no option but to bow down before him. This is our saviour. He is awesome. He's fearsome. He's certainly not to be messed with. Let's have a right reverence for him. Let's not be blasé or casual in our walk with him. And because we love him, let's set our hearts on pleasing him. And in all of this, we must recognise that it is God who works in us. Although we have very real responsibility, ultimately it doesn't all rest on us. We're not equal partners. God's the main player. Let's learn to recognize his work, embrace it, and live in the good of it.